endure hardship is discipline, or literally endure unto discipline, that's verse 7, there will be a harvest of righteousness. Endurance itself can become a spiritual fitness training program if we do it right. That is, if we do it with confidence in God. Whether we're enduring hardship without giving up or enduring temptation without giving in. I suspect the Lord looks at endurance a little differently than we do. He sees a man with uh, some ongoing temptation, say an alcohol addiction. He sees a man with an alcohol addiction refusing the temptation to drink. And the man resists for a day, and then two, and then three, and then gives in and drinks himself drunk. When he wakes up the next morning, he hates himself for his weakness, and he berates himself as a failure. But God may be saying, my son, you made it three days this time with under withering temptation. That's a record for you. You're going to beat this thing. But you have to keep looking to me. Because it was never just about overcoming temptation. It was always about getting me into your life. And that happens as we endure. In order to endure, we must, absolutely must have hope. But if your hope is merely to go to heaven when you die, your hopes are too small. That hope will not sustain you or get you moving. The hope of verse 11, on which the exhortation of verse 12 is founded, in Greek it reads something like, wherefore, or because of this, because of verse 11, and that hope of righteousness, we get the exhortation of verse 12. The Christian hopes not only for heaven when he dies, but a personal experience of Christ's righteousness and peace while he lives. That righteousness comes from Christ in his saving death, is planted in us when we come to faith, and is watered by the Spirit as we trust in God. The entire crop of righteousness is going to come to fruition, but not, I think, until we get to heaven. Yet it begins to ripen here. We can enjoy the first fruits of righteousness now. It's on the basis of this great hope of verse 11 that we'll share in God's holiness, we'll reap the peaceful fruit of righteousness, experience the profound freedom of being ourselves when ourselves is who we really want to be. That our author issues the challenge of verse 12. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Once again, he's thinking in Old Testament terms as he writes. He is in this way, I think, a marvelous example to us. The author of Hebrews soaked in the Bible until he was saturated with it. It affected the way he thought about himself, about God, about others, about religion, about the church. His was a mind renewed by biblical truth. The background for verse 12 is found in Isaiah 35, in verse 3. Hebrews shares essentially the same exhortation as Isaiah. In Isaiah, it's phrased like this, strengthen your feeble arms and steady the knees that give away. And he gives it for essentially the same reason as Isaiah, because 
The future that God has planned for us is coming. We mustn't give up or give out before it reaches us. It's too good to miss. So be strong, be brave. There's work to do. There's ground to cover. Our author's choice of images, feeble arms, literally that's limp hands, and weak, the Greek word is paraluo, that slides right over into English as paralyzed, and weak knees pictures someone with hands that do nothing and legs that go nowhere. This is the person who just lets the world happen to him. He's given up. He doesn't reach out his hands to serve. He doesn't get down on his knees to pray. He's lost sight of the future, misplaced his hope, forgotten his motivation. He says to himself, what does it matter? What's the use? doesn't make any difference. His hands are not doing God's work, and his legs aren't carrying him forward into the future that God has planned for him. The word translated strengthen in the NIV means straighten, or literally, that has a prefix meaning up, it means straighten up. When I saw that, at first it made me think of what my dad would sometimes say to me. Son, you better straighten up and fly right. This is what our author is telling us. Straighten up. This is the first of three imperative mood verbs. Three words of command that our author issues in these verses. He wants his readers to straighten up the knees that have locked in place and stretch out the hands that have been hanging limp at their sides for far too long. He understood that inactivity leads to more and more inactivity. A body at rest, as Newton told us, tends to stay at rest, and a body in motion tends to stay in motion. Now, if you're old enough, you know something about that, right? I have a knee that stiffens up on me. And if I sit in the car too long, I have trouble straightening it back out. When I get out, I look like a little old man. If I don't start first, stand up straight. So I stretch it out, and I stand up straight, which usually hurts a little bit. And then I'm ready to move. Take that idea into the realm of the spirit, and you've got what our author is saying to us. If you have been spiritually inactive... If you've not been obeying God, serving others, moving toward the goal, there's a pretty good chance it's going to hurt you when you get moving again. But the pain doesn't last, so straighten up and fly right. Get moving. There are things to do in your life. The hope of a better day, of a better you, is just ahead. Our author mentions one of the things there are to do. In the next verse, verse 13, where he uses yet another quote from the Bible, this one from Proverbs chapter 4. By the way, he wasn't trying to show off. I know all of this Bible. He had just taken in so much that his mind moved along biblical lines with biblical images and around biblical themes. It's how he thought. That can be true of us too. He wants us to get moving and make, this is the second of the three commands in this passage, level paths for our feet. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, verse 2, and since he's on the move, remember he called people to follow him, not to sit at his feet, we'd better have straight paths. That's a literal translation. That's a literal translation of the word that the NIV renders level. We better have straight paths for our feet. 
Some people try to follow Christ along the most tortuous and torturous paths. They're anything but straight. That's what happens, I think, when we refuse to face sinful and self-protective attitudes and behaviors for what they really are. When we excuse them and leave them in place, they become roadblocks that constantly detour us from following Christ. A few years ago, Karen and I were on vacation, and we wanted to visit a church that was part of the denomination I formerly served. We were driving in Toledo up I-75, and we could see the church building from the highway. And so we got off at the nearest exit and started to turn towards the church building, but the road was blocked, and we were detoured in the opposite direction. So I turned on a side street, and then I turned again, and yet again, but I couldn't find a way to reach that church that was no more than a quarter mile from us. And by now, it was almost 11 o'clock, so we headed back to a Baptist church we'd passed, and we worshiped with them. Now, the moral of that story is not that spiritual detours lead a person to the Baptists. (laughs) The moral is that sins like pride and anger and the self-protective attitudes that stubbornly resist change will get us off on a road that doesn't lead us to where we want to go. When our author urges us to make straight paths, he wants us to take courage and clear away the things that are keeping us from following Christ. But it's clear that he doesn't just have us in mind. He's also thinking of those with us, especially Christians who have been injured the spiritually lame. The injury left them spiritually disabled and it was almost certainly caused by sin, sometimes self-inflicted, often inflicted by others. It's made Christ, following Christ more difficult for them. The injured, sometimes us, sometimes others, occasionally need help need help from fellow Christians, a hand up or an arm to lean on. Otherwise, they may lose heart, to use our author's term from verses 3 and 5. They may come apart at the seams. We're to make straight paths so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. The word disabled in this verse is derived from a Greek word that means literally turned out. And that can mean a couple of different things. Our author may be thinking that people with spiritual injuries will naturally follow the easiest path, so we better make sure that the path that leads to Christ is not harder than it need be. If it is, they will find easier paths to follow that lead them away from Christ. Now, that's the way this word is commonly used in the New Testament. It appears maybe a dozen times. It's almost always translated as turning away. Can churches actually turn people away from Christ? Absolutely. They can set up obstacles that are outside the pale of biblical instruction, a mountain of standards about foods and drinks and clothing and length of hair. You know the sort of thing I'm talking about. Another way churches can make it hard to follow Christ is by shaming people. The principal quality in some churches, the thing you feel when you walk through the door, is not a sense of joy or of hope or truth or mission, but a sense of shame. You just feel it 
Jesus made it easy for imperfect people wrestling with sin to be around him. Church needs to do the same. Sometimes churches create convoluted paths to discipleship. Setting up hoops for people to jump through if they want to follow Jesus. You ever assemble a bicycle for your kid? Or some toy you got for Christmas? If you have, you know what I'm talking about. Five minutes in, you've decided the manual was written in Chinese and then translated into English by someone who speaks Swahili. (laughs) You don't have any idea what the next step is to take. The instructions are indecipherable. Some churches make following Christ just about that confusing. What do I do? I don't know what to do. We need to make straight paths so the lame will not be disabled. Now that word I mentioned is derived from a Greek word that means turned out and most commonly means to turn away. But the word can also mean dislocated. We use the same idiom in English when we say I turned my ankle. We can take someone who has already suffered a spiritual dislocation and actually aggravate the injury. That is not what our author wants. He wants straight paths that lead to Jesus and lead to healing. How do you know if you're on the right path? Maybe the path you're on is straight enough, but it's leading in the wrong direction. On the trail that Jesus blazed, remember he is the trail blazer, the author of our faith, the pioneer. On the trail that he blazed, there are markers to follow. Look at verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Make every effort translates the third of those three imperative, those three commands I mentioned. And it's elsewhere translated as pursue, press on, follow, run after. When you're on the trail that Jesus blazed, you will be following peace markers. Now, by that, don't understand me to be saying that you will have peaceful circumstances. The master never promised us that. Quite the opposite, in fact. Nor do I mean that when we're following Christ, people will treat us peacefully. They neither treated Jesus that way, nor his apostles, nor most of the great saints throughout the ages. What I do mean is that if the path we're following leads us into antipathy toward others, if it leads us toward combative attitudes, if it robs us of inner peace, then it's almost certainly not the path we should be following. As a rule, I don't think Christians take the issue of peace seriously enough. It is a major emphasis in the scriptures. Major emphasis. Jesus told his disciples that peacemakers will be blessed. To his friends on the eve of the crucifixion, he promised his kind of peace. Paul wrote, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He told the Roman Christians to make every effort to do what leads to peace. Different verb, but the same idea. Make every effort to do this. Peter said that if a Christian wants to love life and see good days, he must seek peace and pursue it. Same word. Peace is a trail marker on the path on which Christ is leading. If our interior life is marked by hostility and tumult, it's a good sign we're on the wrong path. 
The right path, this is still verse 14, leads to holiness, or better, to sanctification, without which our author says, no one will see the Lord. That word that the NIV translates as holiness refers to someone or something that has been dedicated to God. Our author is not talking about moral perfection, but about personal dedication. The person who is holy in this sense doesn't live for pleasure, though probably he experiences more of it. He enjoys life more than the person who does live for pleasure. He doesn't live for prestige. He may feel its pull, but he won't live for it. He doesn't live for possessions. He lives for Jesus. He's pursuing a life that belongs entirely to God. If you're on the straight path that leads to Jesus, you will find that more and more of your life, your leisure, intellectual, social, recreation, work life, has been taken into Christ. That is, Christ's presence has invaded every aspect of your life. In verse 14, we have both holiness and peace. Did you notice that? Pursue peace with all men and holiness. It's no coincidence that those two blessings are celebrated in back-to-back Beatitudes by Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Holiness and peace. When we looked at verse 13, I mentioned our author didn't just have individuals in mind, but the church as a group, and especially those within the church who've been spiritually injured, whom he referred to as the lame. We see that even more clearly in verse 15. See to it, he writes, that no one misses the grace of God. The word the NIV translates as see to it is the verbal form of the noun that appears in the New Testament as overseer which the uh, King James Version translates as bishop. In some places in the New Testament, this oversight is the responsibility of the church's elders. But here is the responsibility of all of us. We are to watch over. That's a literal rendering of the verb. We're to watch over one another and help one another so that we don't miss the grace of God. Anyone who pursues peace and holiness will need that grace. They can't survive without it. So we better not miss it. We live as flawed people. You and I have all kinds of cracks and flaws. We live as flawed people in a broken community. In that setting, the opportunity for offense occurs frequently. People slight us, mistreat us, forget us. Our contributions are overlooked. Our efforts ignored. There are misunderstandings, differences of opinion, anger, And let's be honest about it. These things happen in the home and in the church, not just in the office and in the bar. But in the church, there is grace for every insult, misunderstanding, and difference of opinion. But we mustn't miss it. We mustn't miss the grace of God for ourselves, and we must help others obtain it for themselves. There's a promise implicit in this instruction. A promise that God's grace will be there when we need it. Has someone taken advantage of you? God is offering you his grace so that you can deal with that. Has someone twisted your words? You can handle it with the grace God is offering right now. Has someone insulted, ignored, manipulated you? God's grace is sufficient and it's at your fingertips. 
The biggest mistake you can make is to focus on the injustice done to you, but ignore the grace extended to you. You take offense because you've been slighted, but you're slighting the God who is offering you his invaluable grace. If you ignore that offer, there will be a price to pay. To to be frank, there will be hell to pay. A bitter root will grow up, and it's a root that springs from the very soil of hell, and it will cause trouble and defile many. The word translated cause trouble represents the opposite experience of peace. If we miss the grace of God, trouble will roll through our families and our church and will defile many if we miss the grace of God. That word defile means to pollute. People will be polluted. Entire families can become toxic. If heaven had a toxic substance and disease registry like the U.S. government does, some families and even some churches would be on the registry. They'd become poisonous. And contact with them can contaminate people and make them sick, infecting them usually with anger and self-righteousness and bitterness. A few years ago, a mysterious illness killed thousands of the little marsupials known as Tasmanian devils. Australian scientists assumed that a virus was spreading through colonies of devils, but discovered later that their deaths were caused by cancer, by very rare cancer. A cytogeneticist studying the outbreak found something extremely odd. The chromosomal abnormalities were exactly the same in every tumor she biopsied, which meant that the disease began in the mouth of a single sick devil. Tasmanian devils always squabble. They jaw wrestle and they bite each other, usually in the face and around the mouth. And as they fought, the researcher realized bits of tumor would break off one devil and stick in the wounds of another. Over the course of a couple years, over 40% of the devil population in Tasmania was wiped out. That same kind of thing can happen when believers miss the healing grace of God and act like devils, using their mouths to wound others. The plague spreads and it defiles many. Now what can we take home from these verses and use in our lives? There are probably a number of things the Lord is saying to different ones of us. I want to emphasize just one. Make straight paths for your feet in following the Lord. How do you do that? Take a look right now and ask God to help you. Take a look and see the path he's calling you to follow. What obstacles are in your way? What is keeping you from getting closer to him? Now, you may feel like there's nothing you can do about that. In fact, just mentioning it makes you get upset. There's nothing I can do. I know that because I often feel that way. There's nothing I can do about this. 
Now, there is something you can do about it. Now, I don't want you to get all pumped out and go tear down that obstacle. What I want is you to get all prayed up and go to God and ask for his grace. Bring him into this situation. Ask him to help you see that obstacle from a different perspective. Ask him to give you new ways to think about it, new people to talk to about it, new tools for removing it. Take it to God. And then pay careful attention to what he says to you now and over the next few days. He is the master of removing obstacles. He says to a mountain, go throw yourself into the sea. And it takes the plunge. That's not to say you won't have something to do in removing your particular obstacle. Or that your part in it will be easy. I can almost guarantee you will have something to do and it won't be easy. But it is to say that if you will go to the Lord about it, listen to what he says, trust him and act on it, that obstacle in your life is about to come down. So take courage. Strengthen those limp hands and straighten those weak knees and get moving. Let's pray. I ask you, Heavenly Father, to speak to our hearts words of hope and encouragement. When our adversary or our own mind tells us it's impossible, it can't be done, I pray that you will help us refuse to listen to that voice and listen to yours instead. And I ask you to work miracles among us. In the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen.